Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Happy to have you with us here this afternoon at Merge for what I think will be a terrific discussion. Our program tonight will be previewing the 2018 Provost Global Forum, the premier annual event on campus focused on international and global issues. A joint project of international programs and the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies, this year's forum is titled Against Amnesia, Archives, Evidence, and Social Justice, and the public is welcome to attend the varied events connected with this symposium, the bulk of which will be happening uh, March 1st through the 3rd. For more information, you can go to archivesagainstamnesia.com. And in just a moment, we'll have a chance to hear more about what will be happening during the uh, full symposium. Uh, so our topic tonight is Against Amnesia, Against Forgetting, and the role archives play in telling our stories, recording who we are and what we live through at any point in history. As you'll see, this topic will take us in lots of different directions, so I'd like to introduce my guests for this first segment. Uh, Teresa Mangum is just next to me, and she's the director of the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies, also a professor in the UI Department of Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. Thank you for being here, oh, Teresa. thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Karn Mason, head of the Iowa Women's Archives, here at the, uh, located here at the University of Iowa. So thanks, Karn, for coming. And at the far end, we have Mariam Thagert, uh, UI Department of English and the UI Department of Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. Thank you, Mariam, for being here. Um, very grateful to have all of you here with us in the uh, audience. I want to go first to Teresa and uh, ask her to tell us what inspired this topic and uh, why you decided to you know, bring so many different um, uh, activities and events together under this topic against amnesia. Well, as I suspect we'll hear today, and we'll certainly hear next weekend, one of the things, treasures at the University of Iowa is, that is, is too often unknown is, I guess, our, our archives. Um, and people think of archives as papers lining a shelf, and certainly many archives are letters, manuscripts, um, collections of focused uh, books on a subject. But think about what we have here on campus, you know, that we have the Natural History Museum. As you, some of you have seen, there are drawers and drawers of birds, of certain kind of limbs um, that are specimens scientists have studied sometimes for more than a century to really understand the biological diversity and, and um, changes in species populations over time. Um, we have... A, med a medical instruments collection over in the hospital. We have antique music instruments that people occasionally pull out and play, and it's kind of shocking to realize what the same symphony sounds like or quartet that you've heard, what it would have heard sound like 200 years ago. So, and, and in my own personal favorite, we have one of the largest collections of dog novels in the country, <laughs> uh, thanks to a staff member who collected them here for many, many years. So I, I've long wanted to help feature the collections that we have so that um, those of us who are teaching in the archive, we know about these. Ironically, people will come from around the world to use our collections because they know about them, but I want everybody in Iowa City to know about them too. Mm -hmm. and, and how do you use archives for your own personal research? What, what is uh, the material you go after? So what I've used the most um, are 19th century magazines. And we have a very large collection of magazines. And we have, we have a tendency to think that now that they've been digitized, 
we're home free. But when you digitize anything, any book, what tends to happen is advertisements get stripped out, the covers of the book get stripped out, pages with little handwritten notes that tell you so much about who used those materials, they get stripped out. So that when we let go of the physical artifact, even though it's fabulous to have the digitized versions, mm -hmm. to make the, the magazines more accessible, mm -hmm. but when I send my students into the stacks and they can actually turn pages and realize they're handling a book a pers or, or a magazine a person read 150 years ago, it completely changes their relationship to what they're reading. Mm -hmm. They're also often humbled because they realize that whereas they have this narrative of progress, that things are getting better and better, people didn't used to use the word awesome to describe everything from <laughs> a Mardini to, you know, school. And so, you know, they really began to see what a rich culture existed 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and feel much more inspired, I think, by their history to start shaping their future. Mm -hmm. uh, just a larger question about these physical materials. Now that so much can be digitized, is there a danger that the physical materials will just be discarded? I have a very powerful memory of one of our faculty members, Jeff Cox, basically throwing himself in front of a truck at one point to preserve the London Times, hmm. which was about to be, be hmm. um, thrown away. Um, so, yes, it, it does. And actually, this is leaping ahead a bit, but um, a scholar named Andy, Andrew Stauffer will be here in April who has a great project called Book Traces. And he, when he realized that, book, that Google... Uh, when they were coming in and digitizing books at his university, University of Virginia, they then tended for all but but a very small group of books. They would just ditch the books once mm. they were digitized. So he and his students started going in the stacks at University of Virginia and just pouring through pages and finding things like you may have seen in the news recently. They found George Washington's hair tucked inside, you know, a, a novel or some kind of a book. Um, and so Andy is going to come here and we're going to have, in addition to his talk, a book traces event mm -hmm. where we're going to go into the library and students and you all can come and just go through books in our own library to find those books that have the marginal notes, the special little tucked in dried flowers, the amazing things that you find in a physical book that you lose if you rely mm -hmm. solely on digitized material. Mm -hmm. Well, for people who may not know very much about the Oberman, Oberman Center, I'd, I'd like to just ask you to talk about it for a moment and your own personal, um, um, uh, what do I say, um, um, <laughs> passion, I guess, to be part of the public humanities, uh, to create events that, that go outside of the campus confines and, um, and share important discussions with a much larger public. Tell us about the Oberman Center and what you do there. Well, you know, I appreciate your asking <laughs> <laughs> that question. So the Oberman Center is across from the president's house, around the bend where Clinton turns into Church Street. And it is, um, it's a, a center that it, our mission is to support the research, especially of faculty on campus, but also of graduate students, um, of visiting scholars. And so we have a number of programs that are designed to uh, support individuals when they're doing, when they, when they step away from their teaching and service for a semester to work on a lengthy project. But most of our funding actually goes toward create encouraging people to try creative new forms of collaboration. 
So there'll be a call coming out soon for Oberman working groups. Um, a faculty member can apply to lead a group on a topic that any six people are interested in. And that those groups, some of them include community partners and students as well as faculty members. Um, we have other projects during the summer where sometimes we'll have a scientist collaborate with a historian or an anthropologist. So we really... Uh, we want to do everything we can to support the research mission of the university, but to your point about the public mm -hmm. um, side of things, we also want to encourage our faculty and graduate students to learn how to share their work and talk about their works in ways that will make their work very accessible to the public. So some of you may have been to our Oberman conversations that we often have in the public library, where we put a community expert and a faculty expert together to talk about a project. Um, as part of the archives conference, as you'll see in, those, in your chairs, those of you who are here live, um, we'll have next Saturday before the, this Saturday, uh, before the conference the following week, um, an archives crawl that our wonderful associate director Jennifer New and people in libraries and museums uh, around town have helped organize so that anybody and everybody is welcome this Saturday between 11 and 3 to go to start at the public library, the university library, the State Historical Society, or the Natural History Museum. And we'll have talks, we'll have student-led tours to show you what we've got right here in the community. Again, because we want this to be an event that's a real celebration for all everyone here in town, as well as scholars. Mm -hmm. Well, before I move on down to Karen and Mariam, um, can you give us a little bit of a picture of what's happening during the symposium uh, itself, uh, March 1st through the 3rd? The symposium, I, I really encourage you, again, um, if you just go, if go, go to the Oberman Center website or to the International mm -hmm. Programs website, you'll find a link to take you through to the conference schedule. But we have some amazing people coming to Iowa City. And the symposium is going to focus specifically on particular archives that have been crucial to social justice movements. Um, so that we will have one of the curators who helped to gather the collection for the National African American History and Culture Museum in D.C. for over a seven-year period, thanks to Mariam inviting mm -hmm. him. Um, we'll have one of our own alums from history who was the um, national archivist for the United States and then decided she wanted to move on create her own consulting service to focus specifically on social justice situations. So she has worked with countries in truth who are, who are using archives to negotiate truth commissions. She has worked with countries where death squad records um, are hidden that she's helping to bring to light. Um, we'll also have uh, a librarian and uh, um, a person from a tribe in Canada who will be here together to talk about how do you sensitively digitize and protect archives of First Nations folks in Canada. Um, uh, we'll have a, a, a historian of science who suddenly as in, was interested in environmental issues and suddenly found herself with a whole group of scholars around the world grabbing climate data as fast as they could when the current ad federal administration started to take that material down unexpectedly a year ago. 
So these are just people, amazing, amazing people with fascinating stories to tell. And all these events are free? All yes, are open to all the public? all free. Uh -huh. They're mostly here and the public library, and mm -hmm. we'd love to see you all there. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and uh, Karn, let me go down to you now. You head up the Iowa Women's Archives, and I think you just have hit a 25th anniversary, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we've been celebrating our 25th anniversary this yeah. past well, year. Congratulations. Doing, yeah, congratulations. Continuing yeah. that, yes. So tell us about the Women's Archive. Well, the Iowa Women's Archives was founded in 1992 by two Des Moines women, um, prominent women. They were feminists, both of them, one a Republican, one a Democrat. Um, Louise Nahn was the one who had the idea for the archives, and she got that idea in the 1960s when she was doing research for her history of the women's suffrage movement in Iowa. And she had earned a degree in history at Grinnell College, um, but was not uh, a practicing historian, except uh, she really loved it. And so uh, her mother had been a suffragist, so that's how she got interested. And she scoured the archives and libraries and historical societies in Iowa and couldn't find much on the Iowa suffragists, even though, as many of us know, Carrie Chapman Catt and Amelia Bloomer both lived in Iowa. Um, so she had to go to the Radcliffe, to Radcliffe College's um, Schlesinger Library in the History of Women in America. And there she found a lot of material about Iowa suffragists. But after she got home, she thought to herself, we need a women's archives in Iowa. But that was in the 60s. Um, she published her book in 1969 called Strong-Minded Women. And uh, she got involved in a lot of other things. She was president of the Iowa Civil Liberties Union and on the board of the uh, American Civil Liberties Union. Um, so it wasn't until 1990 that she got back to this idea. And then she invited Mary Louise Smith to join her, which I think was a really brilliant act of bipartisanship. <laughs> and uh, they together um, approached the University of Iowa. And uh, one interesting and important fact is that, you know, the Hunter Rawlings, the president at the time, said, great idea. How are you going to pay for it? <laughs> and uh, she, she said, she, um, told me later that when she went home, she was sitting in her apartment on Fleur Drive, which looked like a gallery because she was an art collector who focused her collecting on works by women. And she said, I have an endowment hanging on the wall. And wow. she uh, offered to sell her painting by Frida Kahlo, Self-Portrait with Loose Hair. And that sold in 1991 at Christie's for over $1.5 million and created an endowment for the archives. <laughs> and so that's why we exist, those three women. Louise, Mary Louise, and Frida. Yeah, yeah, wow. And, and so... Um, you not only do your own research to to find stories that should be collected, but you send out sort of public requests to people to help you on, on various projects. Yes, well, people wonder how we find material for the archives. And in the early years, it was a lot of just going out around the state and giving talks at public libraries or um, meeting people who had been suggested to us. Uh, there was a lot of publicity um, when we started because of the Frida Kahlo sale. It was a great way to get the word out there across the nation, in fact. And so some collections just started coming in. Um, and I was pretty... I had, I had worked in archives for a long time, but I hadn't done collection development. And I realized um, that 
really uh, archives don't just happen, that we have to be, we have to go looking for things, and especially if we didn't just want to acquire the material of edu well-educated white women, mm -hmm. which is what will come to us naturally in a state like Iowa especially, but mm -hmm. in any other place. So uh, we, uh, Louise Noun, in fact, had said when the archives was established, she wanted us to uh, be sure to gather the histories of African-American women in Iowa. And so very soon um, after, within the first couple of years, we started seeking funding to hire an archivist to gather African-American women's history. And Catherine Neal was hired and was here for three and a half years in the 90s. And we were able to acquire a wonderful um, set of collections that have been um, very well used. You might see a, there's a wonderful um, exhibit on our website on African-American women students at the University of Iowa. And if any of you have been to the main library this month and seen the Invisible Hawkeyes exhibit right in front, there's a picture of the um, five uh, women who integrated Courier Hall in 1946. One of them is Virginia Harper, and I might talk about her in a minute. Mm -hmm whose papers we have. Another one is um, Mar um, Dora Martin-Berry, the first Miss SUI. Um, there was a lot of publicity um, the last year or so when because President Harold apologized to her for the fact that when she was um, nominated uh, and won Miss State University of Iowa in 1955, um, the university did not recognize it. It was the student, uh, students who voted on it. Um, we happened to have won the Rose Bowl that year, but she was not allowed to represent the university at it, and she was not officially recognized by the university. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. it was a, a very sad incident in our uh, history, but we had a graduate student as part of our African-American project who interviewed her about that whole experience in, in the 1990s. So we have some very rich collections um, on African-American women's history because of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you sent a, a few notes to me before the program, and I, and I thought this was, it, it um, relates to what you've just said, but I thought this was so important. Uh, through history, archives attended to record the lives of the powerful, effectively silencing the stories of everyone else. And so your mission really here is to find a lot of those other stories that don't really seem that important to the larger history, un until some time goes by, maybe, and then and then they do help to create that fuller picture of what life was like. Right, right. And I think starting with the women's archives, I mean, we're starting with a group, half the population that was left out of archives for most of hi history. Yeah. Um, but we've also then expanded that. In so we've tried to uh, gather the stories and the the letters and diaries and scrapbooks and photographs and other material of the broad spectrum of Iowa women, whether those are farmers or um, mothers, housewives, um, club women, but also women who have taken uh, a very active role in uh, politics or social movements. Mm -hmm. And so I, because of our, I feel like coming from the point of view of um, documenting women, we are more inclined to document, to notice that other groups are missing mm -hmm. from our histories, such as African Americans mm -hmm. and rural women, um, Latinas, Jewish women, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You said you might talk a little more about Virginia Harper. Yes. Uh, that's a, just a fabulous collection in the Iowa Women's Archives. And actually, Virginia Harper was um, some... I, I, in looking through files, I realized I met her within the first month I was on the job. I went down with the director of the library to visit her in Fort Madison. She was one of the women who um, integrated Courier Hall in 1946, and then she became a medical technician and worked in her father's uh, medical office in uh, Fort Madison. He was a doctor. And she... He was very active in the NAACP, and she became very active in the NAACP. So when he was president, she was a secretary, and she used to type up these newsletters. Uh, and they're just very modest-looking documents. Uh, you know, the, seeing these things where the, the, she typed the whole line across because you didn't have desktop publishing. You couldn't make columns. It's just very modest, but... Um, it would talk, the newsletters from the 60s talked about civil rights issues um, nationally and locally. She promoted um, a boycott of businesses that would not um, consider or hire um, minorities, um, African-Americans or Mexican-Americans. Uh, and so there's grassroots activism right there in front of you. And uh, you mentioned digitized materials. We have digitized those newsletters so people can go online and see those anywhere. Great. She was also very involved in an, um, with a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Transportation to stop Highway 61 from being rerouted right through the middle of um, the black and Mexican-American communities, as happened in so many cities. They just tore apart these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But she, working with the national NAACP, NAACP and local, the local community really um, mm-hmm. protested that, uh, was able to stop it. It took many years, almost 10 years, but they stopped it, and it does not go. They built a bypass instead. And, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. just one other thing. In that collection, there's just the most exciting document, one of our favorites in the archives, which is... Um, uh, Virginia Harper's great aunt wrote down uh, the Dandridge family history, which if you saw a line in a finding aid, you would think, ah, more genealogies, real cool, but whatever. You know, maybe not so exciting, but in fact, it is this handwritten um, uh, document on notebook paper that, in which um, Rosa Dandridge Pryor wrote down the stories her parents told her about their lives as slaves in, in Tennessee and Kentucky uh, they came here right after emancipation in the 1860s and settled in, in uh, wow. Lee County, Iowa. So it's a wow. remarkable document. Oh, thank you so much for, mm-hmm. for introducing us to that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Mariam, I'd, I'd love to go to you now. Uh, the work you do um, it, it utilizes archives and um, your research into lives of African Americans in this century and um, perhaps before is something we'd like to hear about tonight. Well, um, thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm working on a book right now that studies African-American women and the American Railroad. Um, and usually when you mention the American Railroad, um, people have uh, images of you know the train, engineers, conductors, perhaps the Pullman porters. Um, but my work will examine um, African-American women as workers and as passengers on the American train. 
And um, my work with archives deals a lot with the Newberry Library in Chicago. Um, the Newberry holds the Pullman archives from the Pullman Company. Mm-hmm. And um, this a couple of years ago, I've been looking at the archives dealing with women who worked as Pullman maids. Um, everyone's familiar with the Pullman Porter, the African-American men who um, would shine shoes for tips, um, work um, on the railroad in order to support their families. Not too many people know about the Pullman maids. And so my work deals with uh, trying to track their experiences um, working for the Pullman company. What kinds of records are available? Well, um, the records are somewhat scattered in the larger um, Pullman archives, but I've been able to find um, applications um, that the women have filled out in order to work as Pullman maids. Um, One uh, particular uh, item that has been very helpful for me um, have been the employee cards. Um, So the Pullman company would have employee cards for nearly everyone who worked um, on the train. And um, on the front, they would record biographical information, say where the person was born, um, their age, um, where they presently live. But then on the back, um, there would be information about infractions, um, things that the workers did wrong um, in order to have some sort of record of, um, you know, bad service. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really the records of the infractions that I found have been quite interesting for me and helpful um, in trying to figure out who some of these women were. Yeah. And uh, what do you find that you, what, what do you learn you can't find? What, what does not seem to exist when you go into, to take that next um, uh, step toward the investigation? Well, you know, there are a number of books dealing with the African-American porter Um, It's been very hard to find information dealing with the women who worked for the company. Um, I've encountered one interview um, with a woman who worked as a Pullman maid, but that interview was recorded primarily because she was a a local politician in California, and her experiences as a Pullman maid came up um, sort of incidentally to a larger discussion about her work as a politician. So finding information about these women has been very difficult. Um, You have to look in uh, unexpected places, Um, but I find that's the more exciting things to to do Mm -hmm. um, as an academic and as a researcher, um, trying to find information in the little crooks and nannies um, Mm -hmm. of of an archive. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, thank you so much for telling us about that, and and this is all very exciting, and, and clearly, you know, I've lived here all of my life and a lot of these archives I'm very unfamiliar with, so I'm really happy to hear about it all tonight. And I thank you, Mariam Thagard and Karn Mason and uh, Teresa Mangum for getting us started on this first segment. And I want to say thank you to all of you for being with us for uh, this first segment of our program. World Canvas programs are all available as audio podcasts on iTunes, Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. For International Programs, I'm Joan Kerr, and thanks for being here. 
Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Our topic tonight is Against Amnesia, Archives, Evidence, and Social Justice. And we're kicking off the activities related to this year's Provost Global Forum of the same name, which will take place on the UI campus March 1st through the 3rd. Don't forget that you're invited to attend any of the forum's activities, and you can find out where and when they take place at uh, Archives Against Amnesia amnesia.com. The word archive can cover an endless array of collections of one sort or another. Uh, they might include books, photographs, public records, physical objects, and much more, as we'll learn in this segment. And the archive itself can be found online, in a school library, at a state historical society, in a private collection, or maybe held in a museum, or at the office of the state archaeologist. Our guests in this segment have used and overseen such archives and have joined us to consider some of the ethical challenges related to archives. Uh, just next to me is John Dorshuk, the State Archaeologist of Iowa. Good to have you here, John. Hi, John. Mm -hmm. And next to him is Jackie Rand, an Associate Professor in the University of Iowa Department of History. Thanks for being here, Jackie. Thank you. Mm -hmm. At the far end, we have Trina Roberts, who's the Director of the University of Iowa Pentecost Museums. Thanks, Trina. I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion very much. Uh, the notion of ethical challenges, what we keep, what we don't keep, how we show it, who tells the story. Um, John, I'd like to start with you. Uh, as the state archaeologist of Iowa, you know, we might assume that your office would house lots of documents, maybe some physical reminders of people who were here long before ourselves. But um, your office is responsible for other things as well, including archiving human remains. That's correct. Um, tell us what the Office of the State Archaeologist does. Yeah, the uh, Office of the State Archaeologist at the University of Iowa, or, or OSA as we've referred to it, has been uh, operating as a research center on campus since 1959. And uh, it was established in the state code, which is why it's the Office of the State Archaeologist, but it was intentionally positioned at the university so it could function uh, as a public-facing aspect of the state. Uh, so we're sort of a hybrid. The state hygienic lab is sort of a, on a similar model where uh, there's lots of things that are done statewide uh, that are research-oriented uh, and appropriately at the university rather than housed within a governmental unit over in Des Moines. So uh, the, the OSA uh, has a variety of responsibilities, one of which is the protection of ancient human remains, which in some cases includes actually housing them in our facility for a period of time. Uh, but um, uh, we do a lot of research around the state, uh, uh, conducting actual archaeological field work, and that feeds into the infrastructure development and compliance process that's, that's driven by various federal laws. Uh, but uh, a major thing that we do for the state is serve as the state archaeological repository, and that is uh, an archive focused on artifacts. And artifacts in archaeology include stone tools and bits of pottery and animal bone and all the things that people in the past utilized as material technology that preserves to the present day. Uh, associated records with those artifacts are myriad and include many of the things that you mentioned, photographs either of artifacts or places that they came from, uh, correspondence about archaeological discoveries and archaeological research, maps, of course, are, are critically important. Uh, location is everything in archaeology as in real estate. And uh, then also, of course, reports of all sizes, shapes, and, and mm -hmm. forms. Mm -hmm. How long have you been there at the office? Uh, I've been the state archaeologist now for almost 11 years uh, with the office since 1995 in mm -hmm. various other functions. And uh, I should point out just scale of the collections, I guess, would be something that people probably aren't aware of. Uh, we have 
have collections from approximately 10,000 archaeological sites across the state. About half of those are no longer extant. That is, they've been destroyed by some kind of development action. So the records that we have are the only physical evidence of those things that, that remain. Uh, those uh, artifacts total about 4 million in, mm. in quantity, so it's a lot of material. Uh, and then we have about 300,000 records uh, of, uh, in the digital archive. About 90% of those are electronic. The other 10% are, are still paper or photographs. Uh, but I would like, looping back to something that we talked about in the first seg segment, uh, we keep a preservation copy of everything. We're, we're pack rats in that sense, and don't let that original go. Uh, and a good example of that are the site record forms that we keep. Those used to be done all by hand, and we still have those handwritten uh, copies, even though they've been transcribed and digitized in various forms. Sometimes you have to go back to those original mm -hmm. records to get mm -hmm. just the nuance. Even the way something's written sometimes gives you a little hint about something. Yeah. So who accesses these archives? Who uh, comes into your office? Yeah. Um, many of the people that come in don't come in anymore because of mm -hmm. the digital access uh, that's possible. But the primary users are professional archaeological consultants around the state who uh, have businesses that support the compliance process that, mm -hmm. that's involved with, uh, with doing the research necessary to make good decisions about where sustainable development should happen or not happen. Uh, but we also have then uh, researchers of all stripes, public and academic that come and use our materials as well for specific projects. We have one individual from Northeast Iowa that's been researching rock art, and so he's been using our resources very heavily, uh, as well as contributing to them. Um, uh, over at Iowa State, there's an archaeologist that uh, frequently borrows uh, uh, animal bone collections from our repository for his comparative research, uh, and on and on. So there's, yeah. there's all sorts of uh, mm. users of it. So we had a conversation before the program where you talked about some of the ethical challenges related to collections like yours. Um, let's run through some of those. Sure. What, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, when we were when we were discussing what what could be an ethical challenge, well, the, what comes to mind is uh, who controls the past, uh, who decides what kind of information is kept in an archive, and on a day to day basis, that can be challenging. Just is this scrap of paper that I've written this note on worth keeping? Do you keep everything? Well, it's not possible to keep everything. So there's always a winnowing process, a process of deciding what goes in, what doesn't go in. And uh, history can judge us for that, but uh, archives are shaped by the decision makers who say, yes, this is part of this archive now. And that, that gives any particular archive uh, a, a flavor, if you will, and uh, uh, shapes then how it can be used. So that initial decision about what to research and what to keep about that research is important. But then there's an access issue as well. Who mm -hmm. gets to use what's in the archive? Mm -hmm. And uh, in the archaeological world, there's, a, there's a, a major constraint that we place on access, which has to do with professional qualification. And we use that idea of someone who's a professional, someone who is committed to the ethics of the discipline in terms of preservation, uh, stewardship of the past, learning from the past, as opposed to, say, monetizing it to sell artifacts on the art mm -hmm. market or something mm -hmm. like that. That distinction is very critical. Then we don't let just anybody come in and see the maps of where the archaeological sites are, for example, mm. because they are non-renewable resources. If someone yeah. goes out and destroys an archaeological deposit looking for artifacts that have sale quality, uh, then they're gone. There's mm -hmm. no one making those things anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, access control is, is something that um, is, uh, is a critical aspect mm -hmm. as well. 
So, so periodically we'll hear about something that's discovered on, a, on farmland or um, there's a, a site somewhere where a particular kind of bone turns up or something. What, during the time you've been there, are some of the more interesting items that have come into your office? Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's lots of examples of that. Um, uh, among some of the most ancient remains in Iowa are a particular kind of projectile point, a spear point that's mm -hmm. called a Clovis or Folsom. They're, they're fluted in a particular way, manufactured in a particular way. Uh, these are relatively rare around the state. So anytime that we become aware of one of these kinds of discoveries, it, it causes a stir archaeologically and as well as among the collectors who, who uh, admire these kinds of objects. So, so we've had a couple of instances where someone has called up literally and said, I found this, this, this rock, can you tell me about it? And I get those probably once a week and most of them are just rocks and I refer them to the geology department. But uh, once in a while I open a digital photograph and I go, wow, that is really spectacular. And uh, in one particular case there was uh, one of these very early projectile points um, found up near Sioux City and uh, it was on public property and unfortunately the individual who picked it up, should not have done so. He did not have permission. Uh, and then it got sold. And then it got sold again. And it ended up in the hands of a collector in Kentucky who was about to sell it overseas. <laughs> and uh, the federal agencies uh, caught up with him. Wow. Um, and there are, there are laws that prohibit this kind of trade. So uh, here was this international case came back mm -hmm. to my desk that uh, uh, was very interesting to get involved with and mm -hmm. sort out all the way back to this guy in Sioux City who had no idea what he had started. Sure. <laughs> and, and you <laughs> had no idea that something had been picked no, up in Sioux City until it was until, almost yeah, going overseas. Yeah, oh, wow. So, so that's very, that's yeah, point. very interesting. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, well let's just um, scooch on down to uh, Jackie Rand here. Uh, Jackie, you have an appointment in the history department and you teach courses on American Indian and Native Studies. Um, you utilize lots of different archives, and I imagine um, there are some things you're looking for that you simply can't find. Um, tell us a little bit about how you use archives and what are the most kind of vexing problems you run into. Yeah. Well, um, right now I'm, I'll talk about my book project. Um, which started out as a book on violence against Native women. And for reasons I don't need to go into, I decided to focus on uh, the Choctaws in Mississippi. And I spent a number of summers down there doing research. I wasn't entirely sure what I was doing, except I just wanted to get to the local level to try to write about this thing that people were writing about at a very high level from pretty poor statistics um, at the Department of Justice. And so um, I got down there the first summer, and I'm in Neshoba County, and, um, which is uh, where the primary uh, reservation is. And um, I just happened to hear that the editor of the you know 150-year-old newspaper, well, he wasn't the editor the whole time, <laughs> but the, one of the editors of the newspaper was still alive, and so I thought, well, he should be good for some stories. So um, I went to his house, sat with his, him and his wife, they gave me iced tea, and um, we're just talking in the way that you do when you, you know, you're down there, and which I'm familiar with. And so um, he said, so what are you working on? And I told him, and he said, oh, he said, I don't know anything about that here. And I said, okay. So we just kept talking and drinking iced tea. And then he said, but there was that one case. 
<laughs> and he set, it set me on a search. And on the last day of that, my research summer, after looking for this um, trial transcript um, that, that involved the, I'm sorry, I'm choking here, um, <laughs> that involved um, the rape of a young girl and her death, um, a young Choctaw girl and her death. Um, the white um, perpetrator was um, a local merchant guy um, who was amazingly tried and convicted. Um, all of his Neshoba County, Philadelphia um, County seat friends got together and got him a really good lawyer and they appealed it to the state. And, um, and it's frequently the practice in the South, you know, you appeal if there's ever a, a conviction of a person of color, you know, it goes to the state and then it's overturned. So I had learned from talking to a judge that there had to be a trial transcript and I had spent the summer nagging the people at the State Historical Society and, um, and I'm just sort of beside myself. I said, it's really, it's got to be here. And so this goes back and forth and I ended up at the Supreme Court Law Library and this woman is telling me there is no such case and I said, I know there's a case, I know it's here. And so just in frustration, and this is so, what research is like sometimes, you know, you're just kind of following your nose, you know? And so I went into the library and I said, what is that thing called the Southern Digest that that judge mentioned? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and I go in and I said, do you have something called the Southern Digest? And she points to this wall, <laughs> this whole wall. Full of, so I just go to the year after she died and I pulled it pulled the book off the shelf, and it's just these summaries of cases, not all cases, it's not exhaustive, just some interesting cases. And I took it to this table and I opened it up and it fell open to the case. Mm. So I took it over to the library and I said, can I copy this? And she said, okay. So then I ran back down to the Supreme Court clerk and um, I just held, the, held it up to the <laughs> glass. And she said, Okay, and so she, um, <laughs> she goes and she comes back and she says, meet me down the hallway. So I go down this really long hall. There's one door at the end of it. I'm just thinking, this is so strange. And I go in, it's this big empty space with one elderly woman back there. And she said, tell your tale to Mrs. So-and-so mm. and see if she can help you. Well, it turns out she's the person who boxed things up and sent it over to the to the. Uh, State Historical Society. Mm -hmm. And so she gets on the phone and she said, could you wait just five minutes? I said, sure. <laughs> and so she, the phone rings and she starts scribbling and she hands me a piece of paper and she said, take this over to the, um, the, the reference desk at the, at the Historical Society. This is your... So I went over there. At this point, like they roll their eyes when they see me. And I went up and I said, here, it's here. And it's in like all this code, you know, from the back. And she said, are you, sh and she said, how did you get this? I said, it's kind of a long story <laughs> and it's quarter till five and I have to go back to Iowa. And so she went back there and she came out with this trial transcript. No kidding. The whole trial transcript of this case of a 13 year old girl now, if you can imagine, we've been talking a lot about populations of Iowa, 
not one mention uh, up to this point about American Indians. They're so invisible, even here, even though they've been here all this time. And so you imagine a 13-year-old girl who's raped and dies. And it's amazing what we know about her life from this trial transcript and all the various ways. So then as an historian, I kind of pull out all my you know, toolkit and I start you know, working on this. And so I said, well, I have to go back to Iowa. Can you copy this for me? And it was one of those weird shaped paper, you know, odd mm -hmm. uh, size paper. And she said, um, well, it's gonna cost you a little bit. And I said, total it up. And so I gave, wrote my $300 check to her and I gave her my address at the history department. And, and so then I, and that this whole project has been like that because that's what it's like to try to find invisible people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's really, if I may say so, I, I know it sounds kind of cheeky, but it's really not that hard to write histories of famous white men. Mm -hmm. This kind of work is very uh, challenging. And you have to be willing to work with as little as Mariam suggested. Mariam's not finding a lot of material about these women, but she's going to be able to write a book because she's a very skilled person and she's going to come up with something. And then um, these people will be less visible, or be more visible to us. Mm -hmm. So I think um, that's kind of... I've had these other kinds of experiences in the archive, but uh, sometimes I don't even really know what I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I just don't really know. Mm -hmm. And then I just keep looking and keep mm -hmm. talking to people and mm -hmm. keep bugging librarians and archivists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I understand you work on a Native Spaces project? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, again, it's about, you know, trying to get some visibility for indigenous people here in the state of Iowa and really in the Midwest. And it's, it's about, um, you know, pushing back against um, institutions that ignore them, but it's also um, about pushing back against our understanding of um, Indian removal. I'm Choctaw. I was born with Indian removal in my DNA. I knew the story when I came into this world. Um, but living here for 20 years made me go, well, the story is really actually a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. And the people, as much as we try to erase them here, they're not really gone. I mean, I've met a lot of people that your office works with. And so this is about working with the Meskwaki right now, the Meskwaki in the Iowa, and I'm getting ready to go um, meet with the Ho-Chunk people. And then we have someone coming from Oklahoma who's a Shawnee. Um, we have people who were um, removed from Iowa and returned. Mm -hmm. We have people who've been removed, but they still managed to stay in the area of their homelands. That would be the Ho-Chunk. We have people who were totally removed, the Shawnee, and have never made their way back, but they still have a lot of interests in the homeland, culturally speaking. And so, uh, and the more I do this, the more I understand all these different stories about Indian removal, which is, um, a, it's, I mean, even today, even, you know, like a very respected 
scholar will write about Indian removal as if it only happened to the five mm -hmm. tribes of the Southeast. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm really dug in to this Indian removal thing, but also to um, try to um, push back against the erasure of Native people in this state and in this region. Yeah, great, great. Ah, uh, Trina. So um, we come to you to, to hear about the University of Iowa of Pentecost Museums, which has an amazingly wide variety of really interesting stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about those museums. Well, so the, the Pentecost Museums are the Museum of Natural History and also the Old Capitol Museum. Uh, Museum of Natural History is going to sound to many people like it has um, zoology collections and maybe botany collections. In our case, we do have zoology collections. We also have a really interesting cultural collection. Um, the fact that we're called the Museum of Natural History doesn't mean that we only do things that are traditionally thought of as natural history. Uh, on our campus, um, the archaeological collections are mostly held by John's group in the Office of the State Archaeologist, and the paleontology collections are mostly in yet another uh, department in the paleontology repository. Um, we have basically the zoology and the anthropology, and then um, the Old Capitol Museum is a museum of Iowa history and has some really interesting archives of the building of the Old Capitol itself um, and some early history of Iowa City. Um, so again, a, a, just a really interesting combination. Yeah, and of course they, these museums go, go back. A right, the, the Museum of Natural History it goes all the way back to 1858. Yeah. Um, we are not a super giant museum by natural history museum standards. We've got about 140,000 specimens and objects in our collections. Um, but we have some really, really interesting archives of um, biodiversity in the Midwest, in Iowa, not only in this region, um, but you may know that you know Iowa is the most changed state in the country in terms of land use. And if you're a scientist who's interested in doing something like looking at the birds of Iowa, or the birds of the Midwest before modern agriculture, you're going to have to go to a natural history museum and do that. So we've yeah. got that kind of archive. Yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about um, ethical considerations in collections. Um, do you think that ethical mm, standards have changed during those hundred or more years in terms of the way things were collected, the way they were presented, the stories that were told within the museum to Absolutely, people who came yes. to visit? Yeah. yeah. The, the standards have changed a lot. There are, there are ways that collections were acquired in the early years that we would, we would not do now. There are kinds of objects that were acquired that we would not acquire now. And there are objects that we have sent back to their original owners, a process called repatriation, oh. um, because we've come to a new understanding of what kinds of objects should be in museums and shouldn't be in museums, hmm. should be on display and shouldn't be on display, and who gets to make those determinations. Hmm. May I ask you for an example of something that uh, has been sent back to the original source? Yeah, so, so one recent example of that is um, the, the bear claw necklace that used to be on display in Iowa Hall in the Museum of Natural History. And this is a, it's an amazing um, object um, from the Meskwaki here in eastern Iowa. Uh, it was a, a centerpiece of our case that um, was about the Meskwaki that was put together in collaboration with them in the 1980s. Um, but um, as they have grown um, to have a museum of their own, um, they realized that they wanted this, this really important cultural object um, to come back to them. Mm -hmm. it, has, it has meaning beyond just being an example of a bear claw necklace. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, 
needs to be back with the other bear claw necklaces that it goes with. Hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a long formal process that, about repatriation, um, but the, the end result of that is that they now have the bear claw necklace. Sure. So I imagine a request may come in from a group like, we'll just use this example, um, from the um, Meskwaki requesting the piece. But are, as you and your um, um, staff in the museum look at what you have, do you sometimes say, wow, we have got this. We 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 need to take the step to reach out to the original, um, or the most, to to another appropriate source um, for this object to be um, shown, or if it's owned by a certain something. Just the repatriation. Do you sometimes initiate that on your own? Yeah, and the 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 legal repatriation process is in some ways limited to. Um, United States artifacts, mm -hmm. but we have repatriated some other artifacts to other places in the world because we came to that realization that it was not right for us to have them and display them. Mm -hmm. um, most of that we think is now done, although as we, as we learn more about some of the objects, particularly objects associated with funerals, um, ritual objects, um, that may happen again. Um, mm -hmm. We've worked um, with John's office frequently on, on making some of those determinations. Mm -hmm. Well, and one other quick question. One of the things museum go goer relies on is the descriptive card, um, the, the story of the object or, or the representation you're looking at. And I've noticed in my lifetime how revisiting museums, those, those change over time, um, a new understanding of how we think about a certain, a certain something. Do you, do you constantly look at the way you're describing something for a member of the public coming in um, to rethink whether you're actually saying it in the most appropriate way? We, we do, although we probably could do that more frequently and do a better job of it. One of the great things about being at a university museum is that we, we can draw on the expertise of sure. the history department, the archaeologists, um, and hopefully that helps us tell those stories in the right way. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is a constant process trying to, to mm. do this and do it, do it well. Wow, well, I'm so grateful to have you guys all here. Uh, John Dorshuk, Jackie Rand, and Trina Roberts. Uh, really, really interesting, and thank you very much. And um, I hope you can all stay with us for the third part of this program in uh, just a moment. Uh, World Canvas, as you know, is uh, from international programs, and you can catch these podcasts on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Um, thank you very much, and stay with us for the third segment. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and we welcome you to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Uh, thanks for joining us for part three of our program, Against Amnesia, Archives, Evidence, and Social Justice. This segment is called Animating the Archive, and we're going to discuss ways in which archives are created from the experiences of living people, how what's held in archives can be brought out into the world in other ways than through scholarly books, and we'll also talk about the question of who has the right to tell someone else's story. We have three terrific people joining us for the discussion. They are John McCurley, just next to me here, the oral and public historian with the UI Labor Center at the College of Law. Thanks for being here, John. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Rachel Williams, an associate professor in the University of Iowa School of Art and Art History, also a professor in the University of Iowa Department of Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. Thank Thanks, Rachel. You, you bet. And Leslie Schwalm is at the far end. She's a professor at the University of Iowa Department of History, also the UI Department of Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. Thanks for being here. Uh, John, may I start with you? Um, among other things, 
you're an oral historian here at our labor center, and um, you capture stories of Iowa workers, as did people before you. And um, give us a history of the of the uh, oral history work you've been doing. Uh, okay, so so yes, I have to. I, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, so I work as the uh, the the latest historian, oral historian for something called the Iowa Labor History Oral Project. So what this is, is a, it's an oral history project that was started approximately 40 years ago, uh, not by academics, but by the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, it was the brainchild of uh, the then president of the Iowa Federation of Labor, uh, Jim Wingert, and uh, he and then many other people who he worked with um, realized that in the 1970s, many of the, the founders, especially of Iowa's industrial unions, uh, were starting to die. And... Again, you know, uh, workers weren't writing their memoirs. And so if their stories were going to be recorded and told, uh, someone was going to have to do it. So uh, what the labor movement did was that they, they taxed themselves um, and they, <clears throat> pardon me, they uh, partnered with the State Historical Society um, and with the uh, University of Iowa Labor Center and sent historians like myself around the state uh, to do those interviews. And they were recorded um, uh, audio recordings as well as notes taken, or uh, correct? Yeah. Um, they were audio recordings as mm-hmm. well as notes. So we're we're an audio archive, not a video archive. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what kind of history is told in these in these uh, many years? Well, so one of the things that makes us uh, unique is so by starting in the uh, in the 1970s, they were able to capture the the, the memories of Iowans going back uh, who had been children in the 1890s. Wow. So it goes all the way back to end at that point. Um, so we're talking about, for example, when Iowa had a, a coal mining industry mm-hmm. um, that stretched from Fort Dodge all the way to Keokuk. Uh, and so, you know, these, these coal miners, uh, uh, they created these communities and unions um, in the early 20th century that uh, as the mines closed down uh, by the 20s and the 30s, they took those traditions with them into towns and cities across the state um, and became the, the central driving force uh, in, uh, in creating the origins of the industrial unions in Iowa. Wow, wow. And um, uh, then as we, we moved through various stages in our, in our history of labor here in Iowa, um, you've done some recent work with uh, people in the meatpacking industry. And- right. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Well, and, and one thing I, I want to, a point that I, I, I missed that I want to bring home, which is that, uh, so, you know, ILHOP is, is a, uh, it was an, an act of a refusal to forget, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. the, they, they wanted to make sure the, the you know, both the, the workers who, who founded it um, and then the staff who have followed them, uh, you know, wanted to make sure these stories were recorded. And, uh, and, and this, this last project, uh, I think, speaks to that. Uh, because it, so, uh, one of the things that was in many ways missing um, from some of the earlier recordings, uh, well, I should say, missing in the sense that the, uh, as I said, the project started in the 70s. They were very interested in the 30s, and so the um, the the immigrants who they first recorded were people from uh, from Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, by the 1980s, 1990s. Um, the last several decades, we you know we've seen this new wave of mm-hmm. of, uh, of immigrants and refugees come to Iowa, and that story hadn't been reported. Yeah. So, uh, so what we did was that we uh, got a grant uh, fellowship 
uh, called the Archie Green Fellowship from the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. And they, uh, they helped to fund a series of 20 interviews that we conducted with immigrant and refugee meatpacking work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so that was a way of, uh, of, of connecting those two stories. Yeah, so, so it's the history of, of labor and of workers, but also tells a much larger story about where people came from when they came here, why Iowa was a place they could, could look to. Right, and, and that, that's critically important. It's a very good point, is, is that um, th this, it, it, is, it is a labor collection, but it's, it really is one of the most powerful sources for social history uh, mm -hmm. in the state, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's talking, we, we talk to people about their biographical interviews, so we talk about uh, where they grew up, about their families, about their communities, uh, um, about their education, uh, about their lives, and so it really is a, um, it really is one of the most powerful resources for social history of Iowa and the Midwest and uh, that exists. Yeah, and I understand you have now been able to digitize some of this so that it's available online. R right. So there is uh, it's, a, it's a it's a current it's an ongoing process. Um, the, another uh, another grant uh, from the National Historical Records and Publications Commission. Uh, that was um, from the State Historical Society of Iowa and now from the UI Libraries, where we also have a new partnership. Um, and we, uh, th this, this new grant is to digitize the 1,100 uh, analog interviews and to marry them to uh, the digital interviews, a couple hundred that I have done, uh, to create a, a, a digital archive that would live at the University of Iowa Libraries. Yeah, yeah, pretty fantastic. Um, so, so who would you say uses these materials? Well, so they, they, they are they're out in the world. Um, so one of the primary users of them is the University of Iowa Labor Center. So again, mm -hmm. it's not a mistake that I, I am a historian, but I work in the Labor Center. Um, the Labor Center, uh, which it's, it's an extension service in, in many ways for the labor movement, for workers yeah. all around yeah. the state. And so they, uh, they reach uh, uh, hundreds of workers every year mm -hmm. using, in many cases, the, uh, the historical memories of, of earlier Iowa workers in order to talk about a whole variety of things from safety to leadership training, stewards training, um, and, and to bring those stories back uh, to the communities they came from. Yeah. Um, before we move on, can you, can you give us one very interesting story that you've come across or that you yourself may have um, documented? Uh, since you put me on the stop spot, <laughs> the... Um, I'll, I'll tell the one that I always tell. Um, it's, it, but um, so one of the things that I have been, I was tasked with doing again was to, to get the story into the recent present. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the first stories that I began recording was that of, um, of public sector workers in the state of Iowa who uh, were shut out by federal labor law um, and, uh, and, and so demanded a law of their own here in Iowa in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my first interviews was with a woman named Janet Feifler Friends, who was a, uh, a teacher in uh, Keokuk, although Keokuk, uh, I, I mispronounce it, um, <laughs> they will say. Um, and um, uh, she, she talked about her experience uh, with uh, with gender discrimination as well as uh, the economic conditions that she faced uh, as a worker and uh, and again the most powerful example was uh, you know going she said you know with her husband to uh, on the weekend to uh, to a convenience store they're right there on the river in Keokuk and uh, having uh, the mother of one of her students uh, see her in this two-piece bathing suit on a weekend uh, and then 
turning around and calling her principal oh. and, and having her reported. This is 1970 again. Hmm. Um, and, and again, it just it, it brought home to me, um, who I was not originally trained as a 20th century historian, um, just how, how long the struggle uh, to, you know, for, for gender equality uh, in the workplace was and how important it was that I uh, document that in my work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Wow, thank you, uh, John McCurley. Um, I, I want to move now to Rachel and uh, ask you about an interesting project you're working on, Detroit 1943. Mm -hmm. So it, it is interesting. And, I, you know, I'm really, I feel so honored to be up here. I'm like mm -hmm. a history or a history professor fangirl. So I'm not, I'm an artist. I'm not a historian. So I really admire what historians do. And actually, I'm really tickled that you had Karin up here because the way I discovered archives was through the Iowa Women's Archive oh, yeah. as a teacher. You know, I had not been trained to use archives or really know about them. And I took my students there and I thought, this is like everything I love. You know, mm -hmm. it's a treasure chest. And really, the Iowa Women's Archive truly is a treasure chest. They have all kinds of interesting things. But, um, so go visit it but uh, and give money to it and donate your <laughs> things to it. So the other thing, though, so the Detroit Project is uh, a really interesting project for me. I've been working on it for almost 10 years. It's taken me a really long time, and I'm still working on it, and I've probably got another year, maybe two, um, until I get it finished. And part of that is just the steep learning curves of how to use archives, where they are, what to do in them. So the ones that I've visited the most in Detroit have been the Detroit Public Library, which is unbelievable, and I spent... Uh, days reading correspondence to the mayor, Mayor Jeffries, around the riot and around other things. So, you know, people wrote all kinds of postcards to him and letters, and so that was fascinating. Um, uh, Wayne State has an amazing labor archive, um, mm. Walter Ruther, and uh, th those, that archive, I've been there many, many times, and the archivists there are amazing. You know, because I, I don't really know, I, I know very small slivers of history. I know them deeply, but they're very small, and it's hard as a non-historian to connect those to bigger mm -hmm. things. And so I'll go talk to the archivist and say, well, I'm trying to find something about this, and they'll say, oh, well, you should see this, this, and this. So, for example, I was looking for posters um, where the union worked with black churches to organize meetings, mm -hmm. you know, and that was interesting to see those posters. Um, I found the NAACP's uh, records of they came after the riot to sort of create a counter narrative of, of people who would not otherwise have been represented. Mm -hmm. And within those records, there are all of these accounts from women. Um, and when you think about race riots, you never think about women. Mm -hmm. You know, women are just, even though they're in the pictures, you know, when you read accounts, you don't often hear about the role that women played. And um, the women in Detroit played very, very interesting roles in that um, particular uh, experience, and white women as well as black women. Um, and so finding the accounts of African-American women who, you know, their sons were arrested, their brothers were arrested, they were in the car with someone else who was arrested, or they were in an apartment building, you know, and that had been basically invaded by the police, mm -hmm. um, or a movie theater, or a bus. Um, those were fascinating accounts, and they're not represented in the literature. Mm -hmm. um, so really trying to sort of unearth uh, those things has been something I'm interested in. The other thing about archives as an artist that I really like is, so I do comic books, mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out, okay, this is, I'm going to draw a picture of an apartment in Detroit in 1943. So I'm looking for 
what kind of appliances would they have had? You know, my favorite thing is what kind of dresses would people have worn? You know, <laughs> what sort of jewelry would they have worn? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what kind of food would have been on the counter? You know, what would the dishes have looked like? What would the patterns have been? What would the wallpaper look like? So, you know, this is in terms of historic research, it's not just the story, but, you know, I've spent months looking at hairstyles. You know, how did people sure. do their hair? What kind of pins would they have put in their hair? What mm -hmm. sort of shoes would they have worn? So to try to be as accurate, you know, as possible. Um, and, and so trying to tell the story and then also have visual references. So one of the other places that I went to that was just one of my favorite days I've ever had was I went to the Detroit Free Press. And it's a newspaper, and as newspapers go these days, it's sort of imploding. And I went to the photography department, and there's one woman there. There used to be a whole staff, and there she is at her desk. You know, and everything's digital now, so there's yeah. no reason to have these file cabinets. And I said, well, I'm here to look at these things. And she was so awesome. She liked to say, well, here's this, and here's this. And so newspaper photographers used to take rolls of film and then they would develop multiple pictures and they'd go back with things like whiteout and, you know, crop them or add highlights, which was fascinating. So she just gave me full access to all of these things that I made copies. So as an artist, I was like, I'm so thankful to have these images, you know, with the cars and the buildings. Because a lot of the places I went, the first time I went to Detroit, I tried to find all of the places that are mentioned in all the literature and I actually found the NAACP papers here in our law library, which is really? one of the best in the country. It's yeah. like number two in the country, just for that. Um, <laughs> so I went back to try to find the locations and a lot of those locations don't exist anymore or the things that were there are no longer there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that was really sort of devastating for me personally as just wanting to see visual things. But uh, those photographs from the Detroit Free Press were just a, just gold, you know, gold. Um, and so the other thing they did is you know, now there's, everyone takes a million selfies. So you can yeah. find a picture of anyone on Google. Well, back then, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm trying to track down, you know, the preacher at this church from 19, you know, 41 to 1944, mm -hmm. it's really hard to find those photographs. And thank goodness for archives and thank goodness for the Detroit Free Press. I've been able to actually find images of people. So I try to be mm -hmm. really uh, faithful to how people looked. You know, mm -hmm. and if I can't find an image of them, then I try to depict them through, you know, just hands or feet or some other way um, as best I can. So yeah. it's been a really wonderful project. And, um, you know, I really love finding excuses to do these projects where I actually have to tap into archives. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Really and so the finished product will be a comic book sort of graphic narrative mm -hmm. of It'll this It'll be a graphic story. narrative. And one mm -hmm. of the things I'm hoping to do, and, I, you know, as a non-historian, it's a like I said, a, a steep learning curve, but using actual artifacts in the text and the images, you know, as images, there's a whole product process where you, you know, have to get permission to do that. And, and oh. it's pretty oh, extensive. Sure. So I want to have real things, you know, like these union posters. Mm -hmm. And I also want to have um, drawn images. And then there are photographs. So for example, the Battle of the Overpass is a really famous mm -hmm moment in Detroit history. And the reason that it turned the tide is because this really brave photographer took pictures of everything. And then when um, Bennett's force came out, you know, they beat people up and they took the film out of people's cameras. And this guy was really smart. He took his camera and hid it under the seat of his car. Oh, yeah. And then brave, brave person published those photographs the next day. So there's this whole beautiful sequence of what's going on there. And I'm like, I don't need to draw that. These yeah. exist already, you yeah. know, so what doesn't exist? And that's what I'm trying to draw. So 
you know, I have an image of these two Polish women with their baby carriages walking to the picket line in front of the Sojourner Truth. There's no pictures of that, but like mm-hmm. that, you know, you need to know. These mm-hmm. were housewives. They took their babies down there and, yeah. you know, made a yeah. scene. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the, the stories that I've found. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Leslie, a treat to have you here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so you teach history and, and you teach about the Civil War and about slavery, African-American experience and so on. And uh, one of the things I want to get to right away is the fact that some of your research has fed into a collaborative project here on campus, which un- unfortunately, bad timing for us, is having its first live staging tonight called Cross-Examined. Yes, yes. Uh, not not its first. Not its oh, first it's not performance. the first. Uh-huh. There's been several actually that we've taken around to the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so this came out of the university's program called Arts Share, which has been around for more than a decade uh, to bring arts uh, outside of the campus to the communities uh, of Iowa. And uh, my department chair uh, a couple of years ago urged me uh, to. Uh, contact them and talk with them about some of the research I've done on African-American history in Iowa. Maybe there'd be a story there that I could collaborate with an artist. And as it turned out, I uh, met with uh, a playwright, an MFA playwright in the theater department, and we talked about some of the research I'd done, and we settled on uh, these couple of court cases uh, in 1874 in Keokuk, where African-American mothers challenged uh, the segregation of grammar and high schools in Keokuk. So they took this you know, t- to the local courts, and it, it was appealed, and it went up to the state Supreme Court. Um, and so I... I found some material uh, on these women and their court case. Now, this is another instance where there's no, uh, you know, substantial archive of material on African-American history in Iowa. Uh, So to do the research that I've done, I I go all over the state. I go to public libraries. I go to county historical societies. I go any place that'll have me. And uh, I had gone to Keokuk Library, and Keokuk Library had a librarian, Jerry Lawson, an African-American, who uh, had really taken very seriously her responsibility to maintain uh, records about the black experience in Keokuk. Mm-hmm. So Jerry Lawson helped me find some material about these women, their families, their community. So I... I had found these materials, and I'd used them in a book I'd published, but then I, you know, I met with this playwright, Margot Connolly, and I said, well, here's some stuff I have about uh, these two mothers. Um, do you think you could write a play about this? And she was very excited and uh, wanted to do this project, and uh, she did. She wrote a short play, um, took, took from my material, but... Uh, you know, was was able to bring to it uh, uh, a, a greater focus on on experience and feeling mm-hmm. than I was able to do within the confines of my disciplinary obligations. Um, historians uh, aren't supposed to make things up, <laughs> uh, but Margot did this, wrote this marvelous play. Um, which really makes us think about the experience of 
you know, two mothers, one of whom was a former slave, uh, who uh, went up against white teachers and white principals and the white school board and demanded for their children the dignity of the same education that everyone else in Keokuk was entitled to. Mm -hmm. She was really uh, able to bring us into their experience. And that's what she really highlights in this play. And so um, she wrote this marvelous play. And then four actors in our theater arts department here um, took on, uh, on the roles. And so uh, together we have uh, traveled to a few locations in the state uh, and presented this to audiences who you know, have been very engaged and, uh, you know, on one hand, uh, outraged that they haven't heard this history before, and uh, on the other hand, uh, thrilled uh, to have this chance to learn and then to talk about their own experiences with discrimination and racism yeah. uh, and, and interrogating the actors. You know, what does it feel like to play this role? Um, what does that feel like to you to, to, to go back to that time and think about that experience? Uh, yeah. It's been uh, uh, one of the best experiences I've had as a historian. Wow, that's great. And is this the first time you've worked in, in that way with a writer of, of, a, of a new piece? Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it has just, you know, and working with the actors, and we always do talkbacks after the performances, mm -hmm. and uh, that's been really, uh, you know, my best experience as a history teacher yeah. <laughs> in, those, in those circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, one of the questions that came up as we were planning this program was, um, who has the right to tell someone else's story? And when you do take on someone else's story, what are the obligations in terms of uh, fairness to that original person's uh, memoir or, or oral history or whatever? So I'll, I'll ask you to answer that first. That's a, you know, that's a deep question. Um, uh, I, I would like to think that every historian feels a very deep obligation to be, uh, to work very hard uh, and to go into the archives having done a lot of work already so that they know what kind of a story they might find. But it's also the obligation of the historian to know what we can't know and to be very clear about that. Um, but you're question is, is about who has the right to tell a story, but I think there's a second part to that mm -hmm. question, uh, and that is um, our obligation to tell untold stories huh. and to make them accessible. So I always think of my work as not ending the story, mm -hmm. but opening up the story. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I'm not in the business of, of trying to tell people all there is that I think needs to be known about a subject. I feel like my job is to open it up so that more people can tell this story. Right. So, um, uh, you know, it, here at the University of Iowa, I feel like our history department, our obligation is uh, to diversify the profession, to diversify the classroom, uh, to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to tell their history and their story <laughs> and, and to open up stories that haven't been told, yeah. to recuperate them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do either of you want to say anything in regard to that point? Uh, I, I can, but I, I want to defer to oh, my colleague. It's fine. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. I think when you as a storyteller cross 
you know, race lines or class mm -hmm. lines mm -hmm. um, and even gender lines, I think then, you know, it becomes a really interesting act of the social imagination. I mean, mm -hmm. despite the fact that, you know, historians are very clear about what they will and won't say, you know, and they, they obviously need archival evidence that this did happen or was said or was framed this way. But it really is, I think, those gaps are where the social imagination fills in. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that, if you can open up that portal for someone and engage that part of their imagination, I think you can also engage empathy. Mm -hmm. And I think empathy is sort of the, you know, the mother's milk of compassion. Mm -hmm. And I think the other, the other thing about it is one of the reasons I think history is so interesting and it's so important to open up these stories is because, you know, and of course I'm not the non-historian saying this, <laughs> but there are these repeating patterns you know, that you see repeated. And, and you know, I, I can't give you a time span for how these things loop and, and turn on each other. But, you know, in my own research, I've done stuff from the turn of the century. I've done mm -hmm. stuff from a little bit past that and then the 1940s. And I see the same stuff repeating over and over, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. I think opening up that social imagination, getting people to empathize and recognize those things is really mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would also take a slightly different turn on it, which is that, so for this collection that I work with at the State Historical Society of Iowa, um, in my role, I'm actually oftentimes a position where I need to protect the, the person I'm working with. So for example, they, you know, people, people open up and they tell me uh, painful stories um, that, that sometimes don't need to be public right now. Yeah. And, um, and so in fact, this, is, this, this has been the transition for me learning how to go from thinking like a historian, um, where oftentimes I want to think about things about, I want to get, I want to get things out, um, <laughs> especially, you know, write things and put my name on them. Um, but, uh, which is the way we work. Um, but, uh, but instead to think like a, an archivist, um, which is not as focused on, um, on dissemination necessarily, but balancing access with, um, with, with again empathy for the the person who is um, giving those materials over to be part of the archive. Um, so so I, I I've I've been in positions at the end of an interview where because uh, we have we have signed releases where those releases uh, convey copyright over those interviews uh, to Ilhop, uh, and uh, and I've I've had to be in a position where I said you know I, I think really we should close this interview um, and, and 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 be the person to, to, to instigate that conversation um, because I want my interviewees always to feel like this was a positive experience and and that they when they sign that form that they are doing so um, with a full knowledge of, of, of what it means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for these, uh, for these insights and this interesting discussion. I really appreciate it. And um, that's all the time we have for our program tonight. But I'd like to thank John McCurley, Rachel Williams, and Leslie Schwalm for being up here with us in this segment. Uh, please remember, the public is welcome to attend the varied events connected with the Provost Global Forum Against Amnesia, Archives, Evidence, and Social Justice, March 1st through the 3rd on the UI campus. There's also uh, an archives crawl this uh, Saturday. Um, more information can be found at archivesagainstamnesia.com. Uh, I invite you to join us as a member of the audience for these uh, Live World Canvas programs every time we have one. And we have one coming up very quickly here.
more quickly than is usually the case. A week from today, March 1st, uh, here in this room at 5.30, uh, we'll have, I think, a really stunning program of live music uh, performed by the Elias String Quartet coming from Great Britain. They'll be performing at Hancher a few days later, but we'll have them here in this room discussing um, uh, the theme is translating music, and they'll be talking about nationality in music and also storytelling through music. And uh, Beth Oaks from our own String Quartet residency um, program here at the university will be part of that as well. So that's a week from today, 5.30 in this room. Um, just if, if you happen to be a music lover, you might be interested to know that they'll be playing Scottish music and also a wonderful piece by Leo Janacek called Intimate Letters. Uh, so join us for that if you can. All of our programs can be found as podcasts on iTunes and on the Public Radio Exchange and also the International Programs website. Uh, so for everybody connected with International Programs and all of our guests tonight, thanks for being here and we'll see you next time. <laughs>